Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM Community Radio for the last 45 years and counting. You are with Andy and Ian. Hello, Andy. Hello, everyone. Uh, today's show, we're going to talk about Julian Assange and the Iraq War. Um, I've, we're going to cover it from a few different angles. This week, uh, probably best to explain, there have been two public events, uh, one which was held at the Trades and Labor Council, and uh, a number of special guests came, including a senior barrister, Greg Barnes, John Shipton, Julian Assange's dad, who's been in court in in um, Great Britain listening to the extradition trial over the last few months, and a number of other people, including two journalists who were asking questions at that forum. That forum was a, took the form of a webinar which went out to a very diverse range of people in different geographical loca- locations, uh, London, um, West Australia, Tasmania, and there was a, a big Q&A at the end when after the main speakers had addressed that meeting. So we're going to go to an interview with one of the journalists who was, uh, uh, who was present when I asked him about the significance of the event. And um, then later on in the show, we're going to, we're going to cover um, collateral murder from a, a point of view that we don't often hear, like collateral murder, of course, is, uh, as you may be aware, is the thing that brought Julian Assange and WikiLeaks into the, into the foreground in, uh, in global journalism in that it revealed the, the terror of the Iraq war and revealed war crimes, and that then made uh, Julian Assange public enemy number one to the United States government. And so in the ensuing years, we've seen what's happened as a result of that. But the the perspective it, we're going to take is we're going to go to a, a soldier who was actually there on the ground while the um, collateral murder was happening. So we have to warn people who are listening to this show that, you know, the content is going to be quite uh, traumatic, not as traumatic as to the people that were the victims of it, but nonetheless it's quite a, you know, there's some things said here that will make people really, you know, at the very least sad. Um, And then finally, um, in in the latter part of the show, we're going to 
go to a, a public rally that was held last night at Baniapa Park at West End. And once again, we had a range of speakers, including peace activist Kieran O'Reilly, uh, a, a Greens, two Greens people, Andrew Bartlett and John O'Shree, uh, giving their perspective, interesting perspectives that they gave too. And then at the end of the rally, well, I should say we, we're going to feature some music that came from that rally by a local West End artist, uh, Chris Anderson, which is very germane to the, the topics. And then at the end, I posed a question to the journalists in the crowd and uh, I, I, I got a response from a psychologist and we're going to play that. So once again, the content there is pretty pretty horrific. So we just bear that in mind. Uh, I can't really tell you to go to Lifeline because, you know, maybe words can help some people, but I think myself, actions can only help in this situation. Uh, but, you know, if people are, are likely to be to be freaked out by war crimes, well, maybe turn off for the next hour. This is, uh, we'll start off with a chat with journalist and lecturer at Griffith, Kasun Ubayasiri. Yeah, my name is um, Kasun Ubayasiri. I'm a journalism lecturer at Griffith University and a state delegate for the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. We just uh, listened to a forum tonight about bringing Julian Assange home. What was the significance of tonight's event? The significance of... Um, the event is that Julian Assange, um, particularly today in this building where we are the um, MEW, uh, the union building, um, is that um, Julian is an MEAA member. He is a fellow Australian journalist. So what he's facing is um, is actually part of something that is very close to us all as journalists uh, and, and anyone who um, uh, uh, believes in a free press and democracy in Australia. David Hicks got a lot of support from his father who seemed to be able to tap into the Australian psyche to such an extent that the Howard government felt it necessary to bring David back from Guantanamo Bay. Do you think the same thing is possible with this campaign? I, I think more so because um, um, what Julian has done is essentially expose war crimes, huge injustices, things that affect us very deeply. And as um, Julian's father, John, said today, when we talk about crimes against humanity, we're talking about crimes that affect all of us. Um, and it's uh, there for the, you know, there but for the grace of God that we weren't the target of these attacks. So I think it's important that we... Um, connect with that and, and we join, we add voice to that um, call to bring him home. The live stream that was produced tonight went out to a quite a, a geographically diverse audience and I noticed during the live stream that um, refugees from the Kangaroo Point Refugee Centre tuned in uh, and I, you know, I wonder whether they're just seeing this as part of their struggle. It's 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 interesting. I mean, I I, I can't speak to that, but but um, you and I have been out there for a long time, and we see um, we see them through the bars. We see them their their freedoms being curbed a bit bit more every time we go there. Uh, you know, and yes, it's it's 
in, in some ways, it's the two ends of the spectrum of Australia's incarceration. One of uh, its citizens, uh, in, in the case of Julian, and the other the, uh, of people who have um, sought help from us. Yeah. Well, Julian is a refugee, isn't he? he he's stateless now because his state won't hurt him. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Watch out now, the sun might fall on you. When you're walking through the midnight dawn, black robe follows you. Dancing out in the street to bring the rain. Shadow plays upon the brick. The monkey screams in rage, and they cried out loud. They cried so loud that the walls came down. Yes, they cried out loud. They cried so loud that the walls came down. Sunshine turned. Chris Anderson, who's really, in many ways, the heart and soul of West End. Musically, he's been playing around there for over 40 years, and um, he was playing that song there, When the Walls Come Down, about East Timor, the massacre in the Dili Cemetery, uh, and that prompted him to compose those lyrics. You're on the paradigm shift with Ian and Andy. We're going to cover the collateral murder released by WikiLeaks, but from the point of view of a soldier by the name of Ethan McCord, and he was on the ground when the uh, Apache helicopter gunship started firing at the civilians and killing a Reuters journalist and a number of children. I'll just play at the beginning, just the in the intro, the little part of the collateral murder video so you get a, an idea of what 
his commentary is about because you hear you'll listen to the words by the soldiers in the helicopter gunship because those words are later alluded to by the soldier who was on the ground so we'll play that now i didn't see the hands of who hasn't seen collateral murder yet who hasn't seen that okay I'm going to basically tell the story of basically, you know, what happened that day. Um, we were uh, in Kamalaya, Iraq. Um, we were tasked out that morning to do knock and searches. Um, the Apaches were uh, providing overwatch for us. Um, we had a small firefight, um, probably about four to five blocks away from uh, where this incident took place. Um, uh, we heard the Apaches open fire, and, and what you have to understand is the Apaches, they don't shoot just like little little rounds. They shoot 30 millimeter rounds, which are about that big. Um, I didn't know what was going on at the time. I was just told to move to that position. Um, I was on foot, and when one of the first six guys to run up onto the scene, and what I saw was um, a, a group of men on the corner um, who had been completely obliterated. Um, these rounds explode when they hit. And um, to me, at, at, the, at the time, they didn't look human. Um, they, uh, they looked like something you would actually see out of, a, out of a bad horror movie, like, oh, this can't be real. I don't know if I thought that, you know, maybe my, my emotions were kind of shutting everything down and saying, okay, this can't be real. Um, but... Uh, one of the first things I remember hearing was a little girl crying. And uh, I, I knew that the cry was coming from the van that was there. And uh, I ran up to the passenger side door with one of the privates who was with me. And um, we looked inside the van. And uh, the, the private that I was with uh, started vomiting and ran away because he couldn't bear to look at the children the way they were. Um, and what I saw was a little girl. She was probably about four years old sitting on the bench seat. Um, with a severe belly wound and glass in her hair and in her eyes. She couldn't blink or close her eyes and she was she was crying like um, it wasn't a pain cry. It was a cry that um, me having children, knowing that my daughter was the same age as this little girl, um, waking up from a horrible nightmare in the middle of the night and uh, just it was it was almost blood curdling. Um, next to her, uh, in the middle of the, the bench seat, half on the floorboard with his head resting on the bench seat was a boy about seven years old. I, uh, I immediately thought he was dead because he had a severe wound to the right side of his head. Um, and in the driver's seat was who I assumed was the father, the way he was hunched over them in a protective manner. Um, and he was completely destroyed. There was no way that he had survived. 
um, I grabbed the little girl out of the van, um, yelled for a medic, and we took her to the house that was directly behind the vehicle, um, where I took off my gloves, um, got water, and uh, rinsed the wounds, checked for any exit wounds, other other wounds that she might have had, and um, was picking glass out of her eyes with my hands um, so that she can blink. Um, that's when in the video you can hear the medic say that there's nothing else we can do here. She needs to be evac'd. Um, I, he takes the little girl and he runs her to the Bradley. I go back outside um, to the van and, uh, you know, I don't know actually why I went to the van. Um, I thought that the boy was dead and the father was dead, but when I went back out there, uh, the boy took a labored breath. And uh, that's when I started screaming out that the boy's alive, the boy's alive. And uh, I picked him up in my arms and um, started running towards the Bradley with him, um, the whole time telling him, you know, it's gonna be okay, don't die, don't die. And uh, at this point, he, he looked up at me, his, uh, just for a split second, then his eyes rolled back into his head. And uh, at, that, at that moment, I thought he had died in my arms. But uh, I got him to the Bradley, and when I took him to the Bradley, uh, my commanding officer, or my platoon leader was there. And uh, he told me that I needed to quit worrying about these uh, MF and kids and to go pull security. Um, at the time, the only thing I could think of was, you know, roger that, and, and I went to pull security. Um, while sitting on the rooftop, uh, I could hear them firing the Hellfire missiles into houses. Um, I saw the pictures of um, the families that were in these buildings. Um, there were no armed men in these buildings. They were just families, uh, women, children um, who were killed. Uh, I got um, back to the FOB later that day, and I remember thinking to myself, I was like, there's no way that we did that. You know, it had to have been the men on the corner. There was one guy who had an RPG and one guy who had an AK-47. And, uh, you know, from being over there, you're like, okay, well, these guys are obviously insurgents if they have weapons, um, not knowing that these other men were cameramen. And, and what frequently happens in Iraq is if there's a person with a camera, people will come out of their homes and say, hey, look at me, this is what I have, put me on TV, put me on the news, um, make me famous, now pay me for my picture. Um, there was no RPG rounds in the RPG. Um, so that, to me, my reaction is that I don't think that they were armed to fight us. They were just showing off for the, the cameramen that were there. Um, but later on that night in the fob while I was washing the blood of the children off of me, um, I couldn't really cope with it. I, I was having a hard time dealing with the fact that we did that, the Apaches did that. Um, so I, I went to my staff sergeant who was in my line um, in my chain of command and I told him I, I think I need to see mental health. I need to go talk to somebody because I'm having a hard time dealing with uh, what I had just seen, what I had witnessed, what I was a part of. And he laughed at me and uh, told me to get the sand out of my vagina and to quit being a pussy and to suck it up and to be a soldier. And uh, so, you know, you you kind of like, okay, well, there's nothing else I can do. So you just kind of do, you kind of suck it up, you push everything down, you bottle it up. But that anger and that rage sits inside you. 
and it gets to the point where it just bubbles over and uh, you get so angry that you start yelling at people who don't deserve it, family members, um, your privates, um, soldiers who are, who are your brothers. And, uh, you know, that was just one incident. And I've been saying this for a long time. That was one incident of many that you guys got to see. Mm -hmm. um, things like this happened almost on a daily basis in Iraq. It may not have been an Apache. It could have been a Bradley. I saw a Bradley fire on a, on a, a van load of children, nothing more than children, and watch the Iraqi police pull bodies out, um, pieces of children, and the whole time they're looking at us shaking their heads. And, uh, you know, it's, it's again, that was, <laughs> that was one incident. But you guys can see from that one incident that we shouldn't be there. That we're over there and we're killing innocent people. These are people who are only trying to live their lives and the best that they can during an occupation. Um, I got out of the army in 2009. I was uh, blown up in Iraq in November of 2007. I came home. Um, my spine was broken. I had metal rods and pins in my back. Um, the Army kicked me out on a Chapter 517, which states that everything that I had, my traumatic brain injury, my PTSD, and my, uh, my broken spine, uh, were all pre-existing conditions before I joined the military. Um, so I got no benefits from the Army um, whatsoever. And, and I'm not the only one. This has happened to over 250,000 soldiers coming home from, from war. They're saying that, oh, they obviously had this PTSD long before they joined the army. Um, and you know, it's not only are the people of Iraq and Afghanistan the victims, but soldiers are the victims themselves. They are being victimized every day, whether they have post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury or military sexual trauma, they're being placed right back into the same traumas that, that got them that to begin with. They're, four or five deployments. Um, you know, soldiers are just as much the victims. And, and once, once I realized that I was being victimized from the military and that they were using me, using what, I grew up very conservative. I grew up thinking, you know, it's my it's my duty to serve the mili in the military. Um, when 9/11 happened, I ran out and I joined the military. I, I have to go serve. I have to go fight the Muslims who 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 uh, attacked uh, mm -hmm. us on 9/11. And what I found strange is when I got to Iraq, is I felt that I had more in common with the people over there than I did with the people who sent me to war to begin with. Mm -hmm. And uh, so. That day, especially the collateral murder video, um, I could no longer justify why I was in Iraq, what we were doing in Iraq. Um, I was just watching innocent men, women, and children being slaughtered. Um, there were no so-called insurgents. We would drive around waiting to start something. Standing in the cold 
guilty, shouldn't have to It should be told, should be floating down parade rules The truth was told, and what good did that do? But if it was you well, You might wish you'd been born alive You might wish you'd been born alive That is Kevin Devine there with Private First Class, a song dedicated to uh, Chelsea Manning, who did release that collateral murder video before the song. You heard Ethan McCord, who was an eyewitness to um, what took place in the video, which was later dubbed Collateral Murder, released by WikiLeaks in 2010. Um, And... Uh, Chelsea Manning, the person who leaked it, ended up in prison for a long time, six years in prison, a couple of them, the first 10 months in solitary confinement, um, was sentenced to uh, 45 years in prison, but was later had the sentence commuted by Barack Obama. But Chelsea then later ended up in um in prison again before refusing to testify against Julian Assange in Julian's uh, in the case of extradition. And so uh, under the grand jury laws in the US, Chelsea was imprisoned again. Uh, it's certainly been quite a sacrifice and an act of courage releasing that video. Okay, we're going to play now a speech given last night by John O'Shree. It's very short. It's an intro to John Shipton, who is... Um, Julian's dad and he's been campaigning worldwide for his release and to bring him home and it includes a poem called Warmongers. 
Julian Assange is a journalist and, and it's, it's all part of that same system of oppression and crushing those who dare to speak out and who dare to speak the truth. And that's why I'm, I'm really honoured to be able to uh, present our, I guess, keynote speaker, um, is John Shipton, who the work he has done has been amazing in, in terms of keeping the story on the agenda, in terms of resisting the mainstream media's demonisation of Julian, in terms of challenging those character assassinations and the, and the corporate brainwashing that's been so prominent in public discourse. And, and it, it really is an honour to be able to share the stage with him and, and to introduce you to it. But before I do that, I just wanted to share a very brief verse of poetry that speaks to this whole issue and, and then I'll bring it up. And, and I hope at the end of this little rally, you'll turn to those around you and, and start to say, okay, well, what next? What pathways of activism are strategically effective? What are we locking on to? Which, which planes are we going to hit with a hammer? Where, where are we directing our energy next in order to help resist this military-industrial complex in terms of um, what, what is strategically effective here on the ground in our community? And certainly I think that Land Forces Military Expo might be one of those pressure points, but there are many others. And it is right to ask why we aren't all pressuring our federal representatives in particular to speak out more consistently on this issue. And I include the Greens in that. I think they've been strong and vocal, but they could, they could be saying more as well. Um, this, this piece is called Warm Up Liz. You manufacture apocalypse on a daily basis. Paranoia in the media, beards of round faces, racist rhetoric, spread the infection. From another village to win the election, you are warlords disguised as CEOs. Tearing flesh from a corpse like carrying crows. Drape a flag on a soldier's coffin, but you'll never tell the nation what it's really costing, because war is your business. War is your game, war is your industry, famine and flame, corporation sells weapons to both sides, then counts the profits as the bullets fly. Jonathan Stree there with a little poem uh, against warmongers. Also mentioning there the Land Forces Expo, um, which will be in Brisbane in, I think, March next year. Um, a big uh, weapons expo. It's like the field days for weapons um and there is talk already about resisting it and trying to blockade that and take a stand for peace and so keep your eyes out for that and quite characteristically there he was urging his own party the greens to do more on both julian assange and also on the the revelations that we've heard from brereton next part of the show we're 25 minutes to one on the paradigm shift with ian and andy and this part is where I posed to that same rally that John O spoke at after John, John Shipton had spoken. I posed a question about um, the, some events that were brought to light to me by a, an Iraqi journalist. And afterwards, I was approached by a psychologist who tried to answer my question. So perhaps we play the the question first, uh, put to the rally, and then we'll play the interview later. Can I ask a question? Yeah. You can have the open forum, if you like. So a lot of people want to mingle too. Can I ask a question? I'm Ian from Radio 4 and I'd like to address a question to any journalists present in this gathering. I, I just heard today that that grand old man of journalism in Australia, Mungo McCallum, has died. The thing about Mungo McCullen was that he was very courageous 
and he used to really put it to people in power. Some years ago, an Iraqi journalist took me to visit a family who had been shot in Baghdad by troops stationed at Inogra. Kieran will know about this because he lives right near where that, that army base is. I spent the day with the Iraqi family and heard stories of, of ordinary people being in the wrong place at the wrong time. All except the father had been shot. The mother, the two children, a boy and girl. The girl was 13 and translated for me. I thought about this for a long time, but decided not to do a radio story about this family. Their pain and trauma was too much. Should I accord the same privacy to the two Queensland soldiers who made the lives of this family a misery? At the time, the mother had just had her seventh operation and she was in perpetual pain from migraines. One of the soldiers, I found out later, was uh, severely inebriated when he sprayed their car with bullets. So that's a question I pose to anyone really in the audience. It's because we're hearing a lot about these two issues of secrecy and privacy. And I think my question goes to, to, to privacy. Answer the question, but I, I just Doesn't think matter. that it, the things that stood out for me were the secrecy and privacy, and what's the difference rather than speaking to the actual, oh, no. you know, no. armed forces, families, you know, and when you know something, yeah. what makes it because you were talking about journalism, you know, and freedom of speech, and what makes it uh, an imperative to speak up. Uh, when is it gossip? You know, you know, you know what's credible, what's legitimate, and and how do you, you know, the whole silence is death. I come from that sort of background, um, but as a counsellor, I have to delineate between secrets and respect for privacy. And uh, on an individual basis, I my ethics, um, not just my ethics, counselling ethics is. I won't keep your secrets. I will respect your privacy. Um, so there's many things that, that uh, there's a limit to confidentiality, you know, within the law. Um, but there's also an ethical law that you, you know, as an individual worker, you'll explain to your client about how that pans out. But how you are compromising the work they're doing for change as an individual um, and the, your responsibility and your role as a counsellor, you're compromising both people if you keep secrets. So when people tell you stuff that they've never told anyone else or that they're very afraid of going any further, you know, they've got to be really clear about where that might go. 
and, and so what is the purpose of them telling you? Now, I, I've luckily got that, not luckily, there's a sort of fairly clear line that's, that's um, delineated with a client about um, so that when they do disclose something, they know if I'm going to take it somewhere else. And that's why people disclose. That's why people ring you up to tell you that they're thinking of taking their life. They know you're going to contact emergency services if they live in the country, for instance, which I've had to do, so that somebody will at least get there. You don't tell them to ring Lifeline, you know. Um, the disclosure is for action. Could I ask you the but relating to... So, yes. You're a counsellor. Yeah. It was brought back to a strange thing. Yeah. Drunk and yeah. Yeah. Just a family. Yeah. Yeah. Going to visit friends. Yeah. And I assume getting counselling because he that suffering from PTSD. Yeah. So what? What would the army be doing? I can't speak for what their um, whether that person is. I wouldn't know. Um, but but it depends if he is seeing formal counselling. I mean, this is unfortunately why so many people don't see counsellors because of for fear of what they're holding inside, what will happen when they release it. You know. Um, but. Uh, to, if somebody is a registered counsellor, they are uh, they are legally uh, required to. Um, it's the same with all the cover-ups about. Uh, I'm, uh, my mind is not soldiers and the army. My mind is is all the child sexual abuse, um, and that we're no matter in what what way that we come across this information, whether it's in a one-to-one -one, uh, structured counselling session or in the world because of my job so even if it's not in my workplace because I, of who I am in terms of my profession uh, and that would be the case for loads of people who are formally you know depending on which state and territory you're in you're legally required to contact the correct like for child abuse you have to contact um, ch uh, child serv services um, uh, if you think somebody is it's going to harm themselves or somebody else in the immediate future, you're, you're professionally required to uh, speak to some, take it beyond that they inter individual interchange. Like who you're directed to speak to is different depending on where you are. So I don't know what any soldier might have. Yeah. I wouldn't know what happens within whether that person's seen a counsellor and whether if there is any other different jurisdictions within the institutions in which he's, he's gone to. Because there, there are some... Yeah, I, I actually don't know the answer to that. Because, because there, there may be some overarching things that, as there used to be with priests, and there aren't anymore. That's the, the, you know, there's no, there's no secrecy in the confessional box anymore. But um, uh, you know that I, I can't say. Um, 
if they can bring legal charges, they can see a prosecutor. You know, they can bypass any any of the you know the whole bystanders. I mean, obviously a counsellor isn't a bystander, but anyone who is is privy to an event um, but doesn't act to stop it or to um, change what's occurring. Um, uh, so they can bypass all that by going direct or with an advocate going direct to the police and laying charges. Not civil charges, criminal charges. Investigations of my own. I was thinking about this And I did look up some important documents and it suggested that there was some kind of civil action being taken. Oh, really? But it was very um, yeah, civil actions are, because they're so often just dealt with outside of court, and and uh, whereas criminal actions, once the Department of Prosecutions, Public Prosecutions, has taken it on, but that's where you're in a world of pain, I think, because whether they can take it on, that's what I don't know. That's outside of my yeah. During that day, the family told me that the first approach that they had from the Australian Army was a knock on the front door after they'd had some initial medical treatment. And um, a senior officer appeared at the front door and passed and offered them. By way, I don't know, conversation. Um, and it was and then um, they sought advice and then they realised that the mother was going to need long term treatment because of the way the bullet went mm. through the eye and um, of course the medical facilities were there must have been some negotiated arrangement where they were given access to the VA hospital in Brisbane. They were put in a really poor housing commission house. So they were trying to deal with what they have been built. Yes. And the government was trying to appease them, I suppose. Yeah. And, and, you know... It's not formal, is it? None of it's formal. That's That's the difficulty. That's that's the real difficulty here. And then I just thought, well, as far as the story goes, I could write it up, uh, but I would have to seek their permission. Mm. But then that would put them through even more trauma. Oh, totally. And um, and I thought, it's best just to know about it. Mm. Because the, I think the journalist was really sincerely motivated to show the person here the privileges that I have. Yes, it's not happening somewhere else, is it? It brings it back home. Yeah. This is the this is the difficulty. Yeah. It's the or, it's the ordinariness, you know. It's that the banality, yeah. as Hannah Arden said. And their mistake was. They were going to visit their friends, they were in Baghdad, and they were just near the green zone. Yeah. And these two soldiers were a long way off, mm. and they thought the soldiers were telling them, 
and and they they pulled to one side, and then the two soldiers kept walking, and um, and they were just expecting some sort of direction from them, and the two soldiers just grabbed the bullets. And the mother tried to protect the two children. She copped at least one bullet there in the eye, and uh, and then you know they and then they smelt the alcohol and the breath of the soldier. And the father was just completely beside himself. Yeah. And, He's uh, the only survivor. <laughs> they, they all survived, but all of them. He was the only one. Oh right. So and he, so his, he, they, they actually shot. Them. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, coming, must be the angle. Is this whole thing about knowing something and not being able to do it? Partly because it's already happened, so we can't have it not happen. And then how do we bear witness? And, and this, is, this is it's happening over there, it's happening here, all these things. I mean, that's why it's human rights. That's a big how close we are to it it really really matters and yet the helplessness feeling when you know something you know it to be true you find yourself I'm sure you find yourself you're saying this you've said this at this meeting and you're saying about this and you want to almost add a code of the same I'm not making this up it's so weird isn't it because it's like so what because being a witness is a it's a small burden. It's a burden, but it's a, but it, it, it feels that if you don't do something, then you're complicit. What to do? This is like round and round and round. Like everyone else, I was one of the people who marched against that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. Executive one of the troops, biggest and then does that absolve us? I don't think so because no. they were there to protect um, the financial interests of Australia. Mm. That was all about it. Mm. And, um, and our allegiance to the United States and it's yeah. requirement then for our that's why the banners were no no blood for oil. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. People realised that and we tried, but it didn't work. It was enormous. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then, you know, the, all the repercussions happened. The journalist came in, she, mm. and then he brought his family. Mm. Mm. got to know me mm. through uh, mm. mutual interest in mm. media mm. and then he said well I'll show you mm. I'll take you mm. well and, and in the witnessing the the Joe Secco books the, the artist who, who has been to quite a few different war sites you know and that, that drilling down and drilling down and saying the stories and saying the stories and you know it feels like, yes, they're in every library and lots of people, you know, who are into graphic novels or graphic, you know, work. But, um, again, we know, and we know that there's a small number of people who wish to know. You know, it, 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 which way journalism? Because journalism 
you know, the value of it that one of the speakers spoke about is enormous. Yeah. And yet, you know, some, I really do question how many people want to know. And once we know, and but your original conundrum is once we know, yeah. what do you do with the knowledge? And, and it, I have to say, and this isn't just a pap, you know, that there is... There is great value in bearing witness. There is great value in that survivor family being able to have their story told. Your dilemma now is a journalist has drawn you into it and you're thinking, well, how can I, you know, what, what's my role in this? And maybe at this stage your role is asking the question about what yeah. your role is yeah. and saying these dilemmas well, are being played out over and over and all over no no it's it's a complete dilemma and being able to say we're in a dilemma has value yeah yeah you know good thank, thank you, you very much for your comment yeah. that was uh, a psychologist who came up to me at that rally apologies for the sound but it was a difficult situation and a long conversation which I think was raised a, a number of good points um, the reason why I played that on the today's show is that much is being made against Julian Assange for his failure to redact uh, things that uh, the USA are secret and affect the lives of people on the ground both in Iraq and in Afghanistan and then that of course poses the question well okay they're saying you've got to. You, these are secrets. You, you. The law says you can't publish that that material. But I think really the the big ethical questions come from uh, the privacy of people. You know, I heard that story some years ago, and it, you know, in a, it was um, traumatic for the family, even to tell me that story, and. Okay, I could have made a radio show about it then, but I didn't because I just thought, well, this is just not going to play out very well. And they're so close to it; they're undergoing these operations. Their life is on an edge. Their uncertainty. They've been brought here under. Probably they didn't even know why they were here. They 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 needed medical help, but they didn't know on what basis the Australian government was really putting them there. Was it appeasement? But anyway, so the question I posed to the rally, of course, was can the journalists there say, do we judge Julian Assange on the basis of his revealing and bearing witness to the injuries on the same level? Do we judge him uh, for maybe a, a, a violating the privacy of the soldiers who are perpetrators? And so I, because I, I remembered this story and I knew that the soldiers were still here at Inogra Army Barracks. And, okay, we haven't named any names, but I think it is important we work out, you know, do we really, should we be pointing the fin finger at Julian Assange? I know he said he went about and redacted a lot of people's names, but should we really be putting him to the same level of test? Well, it's quite disingenuous, the US claim that it's about protecting the lives of sources, the case. I mean, there are, were a number of things redacted in the Afghan files and the Iraq war diaries, you know, um, and it's just, it's about 
you know, punishing whistleblowers about like making sure the US security states inside and but they use this excuse that it's about protecting the lives of sources and things like that. Um, but you know, in general, there's such a double standard towards security and secrecy when it comes to governments. So, oh, that's national security or whatever. You know, who's security? The security of the people who happen to, who want justice? No, it's about the security of the system, you know, of the people that are in power. And so, obviously, there's a need for some information to be kept private for ethical reasons, for safety reasons, um, for privacy reasons. But we uh, there's such double standards, you know, when it comes to to what information is hidden in this society. We heard uh, Ethan McCord earlier on in the show, and um, I think that, you know, he he was bearing witness to what he had seen, and he showed a lot of courage because as soon as he came out to his sergeant, you know, the sergeant just slapped him down, and then basically they, you know, he had to get out. He He refused to serve, really, and... So he he took a, a principal stand. Did the two officers or soldiers from Inogra ever do that? Well, no. Um, they they uh, we don't know really what happened to them, but we know that they're probably suffering from PTSD, suffering from the same things that Ethan McCord is suffering from. So th- there's got to be a you know, an onus on people to not serve when they they see how wrong it is to do what they're doing. Well, even in the Burton report, which is a lot of people have hailed as this kind of moment of truth or something like that, Paul Burton himself writes in the report that it was consistently hampered by people refusing to cooperate with the inquiry uh, and that he's disappointed that even when it was obvious that these things had happened, that still people wouldn't talk to them about it. And so it's a deeply rooted culture of secrecy. Um, and, I'll, you know, there's reason to have some secrets, but ultimately we need the truth to live a, a good life for a just society. We need to be able to tell the truth. It's a shame that Brereton's frame of reference was only Afghanistan because why didn't he investigate this instant, instance? This is a war crime. This is in Iraq. Uh, and, and we've got soldiers here in Brisbane who are war criminals and we don't hear anything about it. It's all wrapped up. Well, that'll be a story for another time. We are out of time on the paradigm shift. I'm going to go out with another song from Chris Anderson. We'll play Jellaloo. Yes. See you next time. See ya. Cattle bulldoze the waterways. We made the forest retreat. No more warmth and fires. Concentration camps remain in place to imprison those have there to survive We remember the faces We remember the hands We remember the voices Yes, we remember the lies Now those who 
and died in the spirit and the money and the purpose that I land in law. The warriors, the tool makers, the traders, the spirit workers, the hunters, the lovers, the dancers, painters all know. This war zone. Their God in heaven did vanish them from paradise. They forgot the address. They don't know why they're alone. Jalalu, 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 Jalalu. Jalu, Jalu, Jalu.